Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at MetsPrizeOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I hope everybody's doing well. Thanksgiving week upon us. And here we are talking baseball. And that's what we do here. And. First, uh, in advance, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Don't know when you're going to be picking the show up, but hopefully you have a good Thanksgiving, get some time off. Don't know what kind of news is going to come out of the world of baseball, but you never know. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more. GM meetings really played uh, in terms of a foundation to maybe teams looking at the market. John Carlos Stanton is a big part of it. I don't know how much that's going to clog up the free agent market. I mean, everything has a... I guess it does clog things up. You have the Otani, the Japanese uh, hybrid, the pitcher, outfielder, and what's going on with the posting system there. I think you'll find out maybe if not today, Sunday, tomorrow, what's going to happen. I don't know necessarily know if I believe the Mets are going to be hardcore into that. I know there's a lot of anger out there thinking that the Mets are showing interest in guys like Carlos Santana, and Otani just to make the fans buy tickets. And look, the Mets have done things like that in the past. 
and they're going to leak things to let the fans know what they're doing, but not too much what they're doing, because a lot of times the media dictates a narrative. See, right now the media is going to be dictating the narrative about who's going to win the offseason. We go through this every year, and the team that wins the offseason doesn't matter. Uh, There are big moves to be made, and there's important moves to be made, but the team that wins the offseason doesn't matter. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's not what we do here. I'm not here to, to talk about the Mets winning the offseason. It's about building a ball club. That's what we're going to be talking about throughout the winter, how are they going to build this 40-man roster, because the expectation, unless it's changed, is that this will be a team that everybody, myself included, will expect to compete for a playoff spot next year, not a rebuilding situation. And uh, we'll see how the Mets go to uh, fulfilling that objective throughout the next 12 weeks or so. Uh, one of the most important parts of that objective is managing the 40-man roster. And the Mets, as we've talked about, have some spots, but they also have a number of players in their minor league system who are up for grabs in the Rule 5 draft that will happen during the winter meetings. And tomorrow is the deadline to add someone to the 40-man so they don't have to be exposed to the Rule 5 draft. And again, this is something that you'll never really hear the mainstream talk about when they're reporting about the Mets, because it's nuts and bolts, boring, really, type team-building stuff. But this is important. And who better to join us is our friend from MetsMarsOnline, MetsMiners.net, Michael Mayer. He'll join us in a couple of minutes and give his take. Michael really is in tune with what's going on, talks to some of these guys down in the minors, like I say, talks to scouts, actually even talks to some of the players throughout the system. He's doing it the right way, and he'll join me in a bit. And I want to hear his thoughts on some of the high-end, high-end arms, especially bullpen arms, that the Mets are going to have to use some of these five spots left on the 40-man to uh, you know, make room so they can protect who they need to protect. You saw the Yankees make a deal, a deal that on the surface, you're like, why would they give up a high-end arm uh, like Rumbelow? And the reason is, is that you know, if they don't make some room on the 40-man, they could lose some other, I guess, arms they feel are more or players they feel are better positioned to be uh, you know, part of their future. So it's, it's something now with the way that teams are valuing and studying and with the information that's out there about the minor league systems. In the past, the Rule 5 pick, I mean, the Mets did one, if you remember, a while back, the early 90s, when they had uh, Doug Simons, who spent a year on the roster. I mean, recently, uh, Pedro Beato spent a, a year on the roster. So the Mets have used it. Brad Emis, if you remember, he didn't spend the whole year on the roster. He flopped. So these are these are areas that teams are looking. If you use the term, you know, the old Moneyball term, market inefficiency, these are uh, are terms that uh, to be used with this. And now with all the information with teams rebuilding, a team that's punting on 2018, why not put a high end arm? Yes, you'll have to coach them through the trials and tribulations. They may not be uh, the greatest at the start. They may struggle for a year, but. Matthew Bowman with the Cardinals, a guy that the Mets had high hopes for. He had a bad year in 2015. They left him unprotected. The Cardinals took him. Mets could use an arm like that. I mean, I'm not saying uh, Matt Matt Bowman is uh, end-all, be-all, but that was a guy that at one point some felt would be in the rotation and maybe uh, be another Jacob deGrom, a guy that came out of nowhere. So this is important. We'll hear what Michael has to say. We'll get into that. The Arizona Fall League, the Mets uh, finalized the deal to have Syracuse now. They own the Syracuse Chiefs, and the Nationals will still have them uh, because they have another year on the player development contract, so they'll have them as their AAA affiliate. Odd situation where the Mets own the Nationals' AAA team, and then I'm sure the Mets will move in, keep the team. They've committed to keeping the team in Syracuse in 2025, 
at that point, if I guess financially it doesn't make sense, who knows what will happen there. But now that the Mets own the team, uh, there's still going to be challenges moving into areas you know, with territorial rights and things of that nature. But I'm sure the Mets are going to try to keep the team here as close to New York as possible. Uh, it's a little bit of old news, but Michael did talk about Vegas, the issues in Vegas. They have a new manager there, Tony DeFrancisco, who uh, uh, has been in the Astros system. I think they feel will help him help this organization prepare players better for the big leagues. But before I get to Michael, uh, I think there was a really interesting article that you all should read from John Harper in the Daily News. And again, it goes back to understanding what the media narrative is going to be this offseason and how they're going to sell newspapers versus what's really going on. The media narrative and the fans who really aren't educated enough about team building, and hopefully they listen to the show – because I'm, I'm, I try to learn about it because I'm like, okay, if I'm going to look at this, I'm going to enjoy baseball. How do I learn what this thing is all about? Because that's the way you, you – if you're into something, that's the way you should do it. And the media narrative is the Mets are cheap. They're not going to spend money. Um, you know, They're going to use all these marketing tactics to make you think they're in on players, and they're really not. And the Mets are cheap and blah, 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 and you're going to hear that. Now, look, the Mets have a budget, and I keep telling everybody the Mets – Clearly, because they're owned, they're a family-owned business. They're not corporately owned. Uh, they want, even the Yankees are trying to get under the luxury tax. There are going to be limitations. The Wilpon still, after all these years with the whole Madoff situation, is still in debt. So that hasn't changed. Uh, they've managed it better. They've got it under control. But they're in debt, so you know they have to mind a budget. There is not limitless resources. And you know, I know Scott Boris did his annual State of the Union because the media gives it to him. And he talked about how you know teams' willingness to spend, and that's true. If a team is willing to spend, uh, they'll be able to probably afford more than what they're saying. The the thing is this: willing to spend, is it responsible to spend? Can they afford to spend? Can they manage what's on their books on the back end? Look at the Washington Nationals. Nobody ever really criticizes the Washington Nationals for the most part. At least we don't hear about it nationally because they've been winning. The Nationals have tried to defer contracts forever. That's why they didn't get Cespedes. They weren't a serious suitor for Cespedes a couple of years ago because they tried to defer the hell out of those contracts. They got Daniel Murphy on a very reasonable three-year deal. They're probably not going to have to be able to sign Daniel Murphy because I don't know if the financial situation is going to change. Murphy's not going to take, and I doubt they would. And you saw that with their situation with the manager, how it looks like Dave Martinez is a more affordable manager than Dusty Baker would have been. So nobody talks about the Nationals because they win. And I'll say this. If you go to John Harper's article and it talks about the Mets trying to bring in a uh, director of high performance, and everyone's probably laughing. Well, you know, fancy corporate title. Eh, who cares about the title? Essentially, they want someone that's going to be able to be at the top of the decision tree and be able to evaluate from top to bottom in the injury prevention part of the organization, whether things are the trends that, that are being exploited? Is everybody following a process that the organization has put out? And it seems like Mickey Calloway during his interview, one of the things that impressed the Mets most about this was some of the processes that the Cleveland Indians had and the progressiveness. And I think to see where the Mets have been, the most disappointing part about this piece, and again, go to the Today, Sunday's Daily News, go to John Harper's article. The most disappointing part of this, and this has been a problem in this organization, and truthfully, it's Sandy Alderson's problem, but this is where you go back and you question you know, ownership allowing this to happen is that the Mets 
fired Rick Peterson, which I thought was one of the worst moves they could have done back in 2008. And I know Rick has gone from Milwaukee to Baltimore, and I think Rick is hard, and now he's not, and he's been on the program. He was on the program earlier this year. Rick is not necessarily somebody that I think fits into the mainstream Ivy League culture. Rick is very much about an Eastern philosophy type of guy. He's a, a, a deep thinker, and I think uh, from what I understand, from what I put through the, the tea leaves here, you know, part of it is his life has changed. He doesn't want to do the grind of baseball, but I also think he knows that he's dealing with a lot of people and organizations that aren't necessarily going to be aligned with his way of thinking. But he was a pioneer in technology, and I think the Mets – with some not-so-great pitching staffs, went and competed in 06 and 07 and 08, uh, in teams that maybe shouldn't have even been as good as they were because of the kind of pitching they had. They let Rick Peterson go. They handed the keys over to Dan Worth, and I know Omar Manaya was around at that point. And the, 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 the part of the article that basically – and I remember making fun of this earlier this year. When the Mets are going out there and the solution from Collins and Worthen is for them not to throw to first base during spring training to pitchers to save their arms, which is the equivalent of not driving. That's like saying, you know, I am going to save my car's mileage and wear and tear, and I'm not going to drive it up the block to the grocery store. I'll just walk. Good for your health. It's not doing anything. It's not doing anything. Change the oil. Make sure that you have, you know, every, you know, so many thousand miles, you do the checkups, you take care of it, you don't abuse it. You don't uh, go over potholes if you can. You know, you try to do things. You don't just drive. You don't. You know, you don't take your car and not drive it to the grocery store. That's not going to help you. They make you feel better, and maybe it'll keep it. You know, rest it for maybe uh, uh, you know two miles. But you don't do that, and that's what they were doing. They weren't driving their cars to the grocery store while the Indians are out there using these modus sleeves that are basically uh, creating some kind of technological data points. And I, I don't know about this stuff. I'm not going to dive deep into it. I'm giving you. Uh, the layman's term here, but they're basically these sleeves that the pitchers put on is uh, helping them dictate the safest way to use these pitchers. And even talked about in the piece how it's not the curveballs, but it's the fastballs that do the most damage. So the Mets are really trying to put in a lot of different things here that I think aren't going to be talked about to probably be made fun of in the media because you don't have the, you don't really need to go out and, and ditch everybody the most, the most dangerous thing that's going to happen is, and you've already seen it, and this has happened in other offseasons, the Mets, a lot of teams are asking about guys like Lugo and Gazelman and Mats, and I don't know about Wheeler, but it seems like those three names. Why do you think other teams are asking about that? They're asking about that because they know there's something there, and they feel they could bring out what's in there better than the Mets. Are they injury risks? Every organization, every pitcher is an injury risk. Everybody. So there's something there, and if you read what Mickey Calloway said after reviewing tapes of guys like Harvey and DeGrom and Noah Syndergaard and Mats and Wheeler, I mean, he compared Mats to Rich Hill. That's, a pretty, that's pretty high praise. And that's a guy, Rich Hill, that was pitching for the Long Island Ducks a couple of years ago. Nobody wanted him. So there's something here. There's talent here. And you ask teams that are taking over trash organizations trying to rebuild, and if you gave, put gun to their head, do you want to, what the Mets have right now? Can you make something work with that? I bet you a lot of people would. And the fact that it hasn't worked and where they're at is a huge indictment on ownership. And it's not about spending money. It's about allowing guys like Collins and Worthen to run the show. And that falls on Sandy Alderson. But, as, but, but if you read any reports, that's as much on ownership why those guys survive. If you read this, 
The Mets are basically in the cash lane when they go through the tolls, while all the rest of these teams that are winning and competing for championships are an easy pass. And the fact that the Mets, you could say, well, they had these good years, and they had you know, top five in ERA a couple of years in a row. Maybe they could have been better. That's the thing. Everybody points to how good they were in 15 and 16. Maybe they could have been better. They were very fortunate to make the World Series, but that's not what this is about. The point is, there's a lot here. You have to feel good. And, you know, Mickey Calloway may have sounded goofy at times during the interview, and there's going to be a lot of narratives, and there's going to be a lot of nonsense and, and, and feel-good stuff that will come out of a lot of the pieces about Calloway throughout the offseason. But the reality is here is it's already started. 2018 has already started, and that's positive stuff. There's nothing wrong with using data and technology and things to – evaluate these players. Yeah, there's a lot of hardcore fundamental principles out there that are still going to be part of it. But, I mean, they didn't even know that Cespedes didn't drink enough water. Think about this. They didn't know that Cespedes didn't drink enough water. Now, how would you know? You're not following him when he's having his breakfast. You're not having a camera on him. Well, now it looks like, and it seems like the Mets did some of this stuff, but it seems like a guy like Worth, and especially with the pitchers, was an impediment to what I'm sure Collins was. It was interesting to hear Collins, uh, you know, who continues to do his media tour with Mike Francesa's goodbye party the other day, come out and, uh, and throw a few nuggets out there about, about the team. You know, you're going to hear Collins continue. And if you believe Collins is anything more than a figurehead in that front office to come in like a Mike Piazza in spring training, talk to the media, and run some drills, you're kidding yourself. And if he is anything more than that, then he's dangerous because he's a boob. And so is Worthen. They're boobs. And they've done a lot of harm to this organization. And it's good to see that, if hopefully, a good start for the Mets. This is so important. This is more important than anything they could do uh, on the free agent market is getting some infrastructure here in this organization, some intelligence. And the worst thing that Sandy Alderson, when his, his tenure is over, and it's coming because he's moving John Ricco into a greater role. You can see that. The worst thing that uh, Alderson ever did is allow Terry Collins to get into the building. And allowed Dan Worthen to stay in the building when he took over in 2010. That was the worst thing he could do. And I think that if things don't end up with the Mets, and they've already not maximized their window of opportunity, so that's already passed. But let, you know, let's see what happens in a couple of years. If it goes and they don't achieve what they want to achieve, which is winning a championship, I think that's going to be a big part of it. And, and that was one of the very first decisions that he made under his tenure. And maybe that was ownership that made it difficult for him. It's very possible. But that's one of the very first decisions that, that he made. So anyway, let's get to Michael Mayer. I'm going to take a quick break. After Michael, uh, I do want to get into Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran retired. Remember Carlos a little bit. That was some uh, interesting stuff that, um, uh, you know, that, that you could talk about in terms of his career at the Mets and his Hall of Fame candidacy. So let's take a quick break. When we return, get into the 40-man roster, Arizona Fall League. Uh, really uh, nuts and bolts roster construction stuff with Michael Mayer. Mets Marized Online. MetsMiners.net. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time at MetsMarsOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, you know, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. We'll be back with Michael Mayer right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsMarsOnline.com. 
Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, Online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back, and uh, joining us is Michael Mayer from MetsmerizedOnline.com. You can check him out on Twitter, at MikeMayerMMO. A lot to talk about, obviously, the general manager's meetings this past week, uh, winter meetings coming up. And uh, in between, there's some interesting things going on. Arizona Fall League, 40-man roster, decisions have to be made, and who better to go to than Michael Mayer. Mike, uh, pleasure to have you on. So some, some big decisions for the Mets coming up over the next 48 hours, huh? Yeah, definitely. It'll be uh, it's an interesting time to see who they uh, decide to protect and who they leave uh, unprotected. Uh, just last year, a lot of people thought that they would protect Paul Seawald. Didn't. Um, some people thought he'd get drafted. Didn't. And then he ended up being a pretty important piece of the Mets bullpen last year. So it's 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 an interesting part of the back end of the 40-man roster and uh, to see what they do with it. Yeah, I mean, they got about, I calculate about five spots uh, open right now. And I'm wondering, uh, I mean, before we get to, because there was some really good performances in the Arizona Fall League from, from various prospects, and, and I'm sure you'll get into a couple of them. But let's start with this 40-man roster crunch. Uh, you know, fans forget, you could talk about signing a reliever, signing an outfielder, signing a first baseman. You're going to need roster spots for that. So just because the Mets have five spots doesn't mean they'll protect five players for the Rule 5 draft. And they've got some interesting arms, bullpen arms especially, uh, that I think they may want to be careful about in this day and age where a rebuilding team or a team just willing to take a flyer on somebody may uh, pick them off. So uh, what do you think is going to happen? Because it's 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 going to be tough. The Mets are going to leave, I think, a good player exposed to the Rule 5 draft. Yeah, I uh, predictions on Mets Mirage the other day, I I really believe there's there's five guys that I would protect. Um, I'm not sure that's what the Mets do, especially since um, three of the guys that I would protect, um, Gershon, Batista, uh Hard-throwing right-hander throws over 100 that they got in the uh, deal for Addison Reed. Tyler Bashler, uh, another hard-throwing righty that uh, finished the year as the Binghamton closer. And then O'Donnell Shusetter, another hard-throwing righty that uh, had a breakout year after um, transitioning to the bullpen. Um, those are three relievers that um, are going to – I would protect all three, I think, um, it comes down to maybe the Mets choose two of those three because of the amount of relievers they already have on the 40. Like we we're talking about, um, they already Rame um, and Callahan and McGowan all got added to the 40 late last year, and then you had guys Bradford, 
and seawall that were added last year. So I think it's a kind of see how many relievers that you can fit onto it. And like you said, been very adamant about the fact that they're going to go out and sign not just one reliever. They've made it sound like they're going to sign two. So there's there's only so many relievers that you can fit on the um, 40-man roster, whether that's they have another open spot or not. Because if you fill up you fill up the 40 now, um, then you have to when you sign a reliever or two, you you're going to have to DFA a guy, and um, it's easier to get a player through the Rule 5 draft because of the stipulations of being on the 25-man roster all year than it is getting a guy through waivers when they just have to pick him up and put him on the 40. So I I think that's kind of where you see the other two locks that I have are um, infielder Luis Guillerme. I think his defense alone, he could be playing in the major leagues tomorrow. So I think his defensive alone makes him a major league baseball player and uh and he's he's gotten on base at a high clip too so i mean i think i think he's a bench piece at uh, that's his floor right now so i think you absolutely have to protect him and then Corey oswald starter that was the actually the eastern league pitcher of the year for binghamton so given what we saw last year with the depth of their starting pitching, I I definitely think he's someone they absolutely protect. So um, it'll it'll be interesting to see how it breaks down with the relievers that they have for options, um, because th- there are other options that I didn't even I haven't mentioned yet. But I I think those are the three strong ones that they're going to consider. It's interesting because as you even go up and down the AFL roster, you go up and down the Mets minor league affiliates, look, they've struggled. Sandy Alderson struggled to put together competitive bullpens on a consistent basis. But there seems to be, not just because they acquired these arms late in the year, uh, there seems to be a, a number of high strikeout, interesting arms up and down the system. Maybe not all of them are going to help in, in 2018, but maybe the Mets have some options as the year into the end of this season, into the following year. Uh, where they can have a good bullpen. Yeah, you want to sign a couple of veterans. They want to compete. But you look up and down the AFL, they had some good performances, uh, some interesting names. Maybe it's not as bad of a system. Maybe it's not as high-end right now because there's still a lot of question marks. But maybe the system's not as bad and and can produce at least component players at the very least. Oh, yeah, I would say um, between the trades, some of the good arms that Alderson got in the trades and um, the breakout years for a couple of relievers, I think I think that's really could be a strength for them in the next couple of years is um, getting a couple of big league relievers out of that group and not just not just sixth, seventh inning guys. I, I think there's a couple of back end guys that are possible to get out of the strong group um, that they have, the guys that I've mentioned. Um, and then in the AFL, like you were talking about, um, lefty Kyle Regnall was a, unbelievable in the AFL. It's 17 strikeouts and only allowed one earned run in 12 innings. And he pitched well um, for Vegas this year, too. I know he's an older guy. He's 28, um, but he's a former 
former starter, so he throws four pitches out of the bullpen, and he's he's kind of like your Sean Gilmartin type, but he throws a little harder than Gilmartin, and we even saw it with Gilmartin. He had a great first year with the Mets, so it's he's the type of guy that I think we'll see at some point next year in the big leagues. Um, and then Matt Pulbareco didn't allow a run in that Arizona Fall League. Um, a pretty hard-throwing righty. He's a little funky, too. He's short arm, short arm kind of guy that hides the ball well, too. He actually he was pitching in independent ball to start um, the season last year, and the Mets signed him, and he pitched great in the minor leagues. I mean, he struck out almost 14 guys per nine innings in uh, for Columbia last year. So I, there's there's a ton of arms that the Mets are going to have um, that were high strikeout guys, like you mentioned last year, that um, could possibly possibly be big big league relievers, and some of these guys we're going to see next year probably too. You mentioned, uh, and by the way, I have Michael Mayer metsmerized online with me, Luis Guillerme, and I think he's interesting because he doesn't fit the profile of the modern player. He doesn't have a lot of power. Um, you know, he's a singles guy, great defense. Like you said, his floor probably is more of a utility guy, defensive replacement. But if he could get on base, if he could learn to work counts, be that number two hitter, uh, save an, in a good offensive team up the middle defense with him and Rosario up the middle, uh, that's something the Mets haven't had in a long time. And I, and I think I read somewhere, someone made a point, if this was a, a show, we were doing a show in 1989, Guillerme would probably be the kind of perfect second base, top of the order, number two hitter. Uh, the game has changed a lot since 1989, since 30 years ago. But it's interesting. Maybe those kind of players will eventually, uh, if they progress and do a lot of the little things outside of the home runs, maybe they could stick. And in the right lineup, maybe they could uh, even find some playing time. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about Guillerme. He's a guy who had to. 376 on base last year at 22 years old in double a so i like you said it's he's more of a throwback type player where it's it's tough for him to it's tough to see him as a um, everyday major leaguer now unless he starts hitting for more power i mean he has two home runs in over 1700 minor league at bats i mean that's just that's not something that's going to work in today's baseball. That, well, I mean, that type of power hasn't worked at all because he, he doesn't have – when you see a guy with low power and great on base, you think, well, he must be a fast guy, Luis Castillo, Juan Pierre, um, D. Gordon now. But he, he's not a fast guy either. So he's – I mean, he's a step, step above average, but he doesn't have blazing speed like any of those guys. So you have to wonder once he gets to the major leagues and pitchers know that he has no power whatsoever, is he still going to be able to work out those walks with uh, major league pitchers presumably being ultra-aggressive with him? So that's kind of the question mark you have with him is if he's going to get on base enough to be an everyday guy because his his defense is certainly more than good enough. I mean, that shortstop and second base, he he plays a gold-glove caliber defense at both spots. Michael Mayer, Metsmerized Online, uh, joining me here. Uh, you know, we haven't had a chance to talk since the season ended, and uh, it was made official uh, late last week how uh, the Syracuse Chiefs now are owned by the Mets. 
Uh, Mets are going to move their minor league affiliate over the next uh, season from Vegas to Syracuse. I think this is a big deal, and and you actually wrote uh, with some good uh, reporting uh, right around when the season ended uh, how bad things were in Vegas, not only from the fact that it's difficult to get players out of there, but you know issues with Pedro Lopez. Obviously, Frank Viola is actually taking a demotion, and I've heard a lot of good things about Glenn Abbott. It looks like he's going to become a more prominent uh, voice maybe to help with the, the, the pitchers as they go from uh, the highest level to the big leagues. Uh, talk a little bit about Syracuse, you know, Vegas. I think this is a big move. Um, it looks like the Mets are finally getting themselves back where uh, now between Binghamton and Syracuse and Brooklyn, you could you could do rehabs. You're building a brand up and down the state where you have different affiliates connected. I think from a business standpoint, it makes a ton of sense. And, um, you know, this is a long time coming. There hasn't been any stability with the uh, player development affiliation since they left uh, Norfolk uh, well over 10 years ago. Yeah, it's it's really tough to understate just just how important this is going to be in the short term and in the long term. I mean, this at the very least, I mean they're they're buying this team, so it's it's going to be for the long haul, and they're guaranteed to be keeping the team at the ballpark in Syracuse um, through 2025. So I mean, this isn't a short term fix either. So I it I mean. You just ask. All you have to do is ask some of the players, like Sean Gilmartin that previously mentioned, uh, Eric Godell, uh, some of the, Eric Campbell before. I mean, these guys that had to constantly do cross-country flights, um, red eyes to just get to the ballpark, so the Mets had enough um, and live bodies to, on the bench. It's. It was just. It was a total mess to have out in Vegas and. That's not even jumping into um, the offensive power zone that place was and how tough it was to um, evaluate hitting pitchers. And so this is this is a huge step for the Mets to be able to have um, them only a couple hours away. And uh, I I think it'll be a great step going forward. And uh, it'll it'll be it'll be interesting. Um, interesting to see in Vegas this year. I'm I'm a big fan of Glenn Abbott. Uh have been for a while ever since I get a chance to um see Binghamton a couple of times every year when they come up and play in Maine, so I always get a chance to talk to some of the pitchers and watch them firsthand and uh he's great with the pitchers and it's uh, it's remarkable some of the guys we've seen who were Oh yeah, maybe they're a prospect, and the next thing you know, the pitching in the big leagues. When you got someone like Seth Lugo, um, Gazelman, even Michael Fulmer. Fulmer had his big breakout. Uh, part of his big breakout year was under Abbott in Binghamton before he got traded, and uh, I, I think he was a big part of that. Um, and just this year, we've been talking about Oswald. Oswald really went from a no-name prospect to now he's might get added to the 40-man roster. So I think I think Abbott is Abbott is a guy that uh has really helped this organization and uh, I think he certainly deserved his promotion and uh, it'll be good to see him one step closer to the major leagues and at some point I I think you'll see him on the Mets uh, coaching staff. And Tony DeFrancisco from the Houston Astros. I mean, you you talked about I guess Pedro Lopez who was highly regarded 
the, the, the shine went off the apple a little bit there. Uh, real brief, I know it's old news, but um, it just seemed from big league coaching all the way down, things just weren't right last year. I don't know where it went wrong, but even in the AAA, uh, you know, I know that Viola is a, a name that a lot of Mets fans, including myself, were like, hey, you know, there's a guy that seems to have worked with a bunch of guys and done nice work, but um, it seems like that coaching staff in Vegas, there was a lot of issues there last year. Yeah, yeah, I, like you said, I don't want to delve too much into the past now, but yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because I, I, I had talked about Pedro Lopez on the show with you about how highly I thought of him, and it it just shows you that uh, things can change pretty quickly in this game and uh, that we, we don't always know exactly what's going on behind the scenes and that sometimes uh, a mixture of guys in one clubhouse, just it just doesn't work, or a mixture of guys in the coaching staff doesn't work and just how quickly that, uh, that type of atmosphere can uh, crumble. And uh, it's too bad to see, but like you said, uh, brought in a new manager and Tony... Francesco and uh, everything I've talked to people and read about him, it, I really like. He's a big analytical guy coming from the um, Houston Astros, um, and uh, obviously that's something that kind of ties into what the Mets have done at AAA with uh, their scouting there, and it ties into how Alderson's strengths too. So I I think he's a good fit for the. Um, 51s, and it, uh, it'll be interesting to see what type of uh, year he has in his first year in the organization. And, you know, even though, going to the couple of the players before we wrap up here, Thomas Nitto, although he had a cup of coffee this year, and the Mets catching situation, look, I think it's wide open. I think if I'm Kevin Ploicki or Travis Darno or even Nitto, I would, you know, I'd say, hey, I, I could be the starting catcher. I mean, nobody seems to have wrestled that away, and Darno's, I don't think, is any longer can be looked at as a, a shoe-in, although he'd probably be given a little bit of an advantage because of who he was and how highly regarded he's been and, and, and a little bit of a resume at times with some, some sm- small samples of success. But Nitto did not really step up in the Arizona Fall League. Uh, do you think that's hurt his chances? Uh, you think the organization will look a little differently about him? No, I, d- I, don't, uh, I don't think anything he did in the AF the Arizona falling changed anything. He, uh, I actually talked to him um, the other day about it, and he said he doesn't think he's ever had a stretch in baseball where he hit the ball harder and just was right at people. So he, he still thought he was taking good swings, and uh, I'm sure the Mets, if he, thought, if he thought so, I'm sure the Mets thought the same too. Um, obviously, it's still frustrating for him. He's it kind of capped off a rough offensive season for him in total. Um, but I, I think I think the one thing I would like to see from him is just to be a little more selective. He, he had that approach where um, in 2016 he decided he was going to come out and jump out on guys a little more early in the count, and that worked out really well in single A. But that's... Uh, Double A is a big jump, and that, that same type of approach doesn't always work there. So I think just him going back to the drawing board a little bit with his approach there, because he's he's got a nice swing and he's he's got some good power for a catcher, and his defensive skills are good. He's got a good arm, receives the ball well. All the all the um, pitchers 
I talked to love throwing to him. In fact, one guy we haven't mentioned yet, um, knuckleballer Mickey Onish, um, right. who had a great AFL season, and he had a great second half of the season. He uh, he told me Nitto is one of the best catchers receiving-wise that he's ever thrown to. So, I mean, that's high praise for a guy like Giannis who's thrown in a bunch of different leagues to a bunch of different guys. So that uh, I think – at, I think he's going to make the major leagues, and he'll stick around as a um, backup on his defense. It, uh, whether or not he's a starter will kind of depend on if he's going to make those uh, adjustments at the plate, I think. Uh, you know, you mentioned Giannis, and I was getting to him. And I mean, look, we've seen R.A. Dickey here. Um, anybody who followed baseball saw Stephen Wright. If you're an old-time fan, you remember Phil Necro and Joe Necro, Tom Candiotti. I mean, knuckleballers. They died off, and, and maybe R.A. Dickey kind of brought it back to the forefront. Uh, there's a guy that was pitching just a couple of years ago for the Long Island Ducks, but so is Rich Hill, and we see where Rich Hill is now. Uh, what do you think? I mean, is this, uh, is this a um, kind of a carnival act? I mean, he could be picked up in the Rule 5 draft. I believe he's a name that, that could be. Correct me if I'm wrong. And I uh, had a decent year at Binghamton. I know he's a knuckleballer. Who the hell knows what to make of all this? At uh, the very least, uh, you know, Tim Wakefield, another name. I mean, he could come up. Remember, when Wakefield came up, he baffled everybody. Even even though he, he was always a good pitcher, he, he, when he initially came up, he was really good with the Pirates, and he helped them win a pennant uh, division, I should say. So uh, it would be interesting what kind of impact he could have for them this year. Yeah, I, coming in, he had a rough first half. He pitched really well in the second half for Binghamton, and he pitched really well in the a- AFL, I mean, for me, a couple of things I look out for for knuckleballers because they're so tough to scout and it's so tough to just get a real feel about if they're going to be a major league pitcher or not is are they walking people and are they giving up home runs? Janusz in the AFL didn't give up a single home run in 27 innings and he only walked five batters compared to 24 strikeouts. Um, and and that's that's not just... It's not an outlier for him. He that was finishing the trend of the second half that he had. Um, so I I, I think it, if he can continue controlling the knuckleball, that that's the biggest issue, is always controlling the knuckleball. If he can control that, I think, I really think that you're going to end up seeing him pitch in the big leagues. And you mentioned Candiotti. He's actually been working with Candiotti, too, um, on refining his knuckleball and I think he's got just enough of a fastball, too. He actually throws a little harder than Dickey. I've seen him throw 87, 88. So, I mean, he's got enough of a fastball to kind of throw you off, too. So I think I think if he continues this trend of um, being able to control it and throw it for strikes, I, I think he really does have a shot. I'm not talking about Ari Dickey. I, I would never predict that type of thing, but he, he's got a shot to pay pitch some major league innings which i mean like you said that's that's not something you expect when you were pitching for the long island ducks a couple of years ago do you feel the mets are gonna lose somebody in the rule five draft that's gonna hurt them i mean you feel pretty good about um you know you made some predictions over at metsmerized online i mean obviously we're probably because this is a Mets-centric show talking more about it than maybe it's worth but Look, this is in the modern day of baseball, this kind of uh, inefficiency, market inefficiency, getting players through the Rule 5 draft. I mean, the Phillies have done it. You saw the Mets do it. 
Um, you can get yourself uh, – I mean, it's happened over the course of uh, – I think even at one point maybe Cecil Fielder was a Rule 5 guy. So uh, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to think back. So you can get a contributor in the Rule 5 draft, and you can lose someone. I mean, uh, you know, the Mets lost a guy a couple of years ago to the Cardinals. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, you, you definitely can uh, – I don't want to say it's not – it's painful, but you can lose a decent arm or a decent bat if you, if you don't do the right thing and make the right move. Yeah, I think you can lose. I mean, look, the Mets lost Matthew Bowman, and he's he's been a vital part of the Cardinals' bullpen the last two years. He's been a steady guy for them that's pitched out of multiple roles, and he it might not be a big name, and he may he may not ever be an All Star or anything like that. But he's he's the type of guy that's important to a 25 man roster, and I think honestly, I've I've always been kind of surprised at some of the teams that underutilize the Rule 5 because of, I mean, it's only costing you 50000 um to take that player. And it's something, if I was a general manager, that I would be searching more for to find a diamond in a rough or just a useful back-end player when you're going to be a, a bad team. I mean, you've seen the Padres the last couple of years have been very aggressive, taking multiple guys for multiple years. So um, I think the the trio of relievers I talked about, Batista, Bachelor, and Yuseta, if they leave any of those three unprotected, I absolutely think they'll get taken. Um, it's just, I mean, Bachelor, his 15-point, 20, his 15.22 Ks per nine innings last year led all the minor leagues, and he throws 98. So, I mean, you leave a guy like that, Tista throws 101 and showed good control after getting traded to the Mets. Um, you said is a good two-pitch guy. So um, another name is Matt Blackham, a reliever that pitched extremely well for Columbia last year. Um, I don't think he gets protected, I think, because he's behind some of those other guys. Um but he's he, he's a name that would come up other GMs I guarantee you when they're talking about possibly taking he he's a guy that they would look at a former starter which is something that GMs always look in look at for a reliever so I think I think Blackham is a name that you would hear too and uh, Tim Peterson who pitched great in the Arizona Fall League and he pitched good this year in the minor leagues too another right-handed reliever I think he would be a guy that might interest some teams too. Um, he's not a fireballer, but keeps the ball on the ground and in the park. So, I think, I think there's a good, there's a chance that they they lose a reliever. Um, it really depends on who I think they end up protecting, and if they decide to go with four guys and have a spot opener, if they tr- fill up the forty and uh, um, protect five guys. It, uh, It'll be interesting to see, that's for sure. And uh, so we'll what do you, find out what do you got Monday coming night. up? What do you got? I mean, obviously Monday night we'll we'll find out what the Mets' decision is. That'll be the you know they have to make their decision on the forty man for the Rule Five draft. What else do you have coming up? What else can you tease the fans to kind of give them an idea? Obviously, winter meetings coming up, uh, free agency trades, but anything else you got going on in the hopper that you want to plug and and get out there? Well, over at uh, Mets Miners. Uh, .net. The last couple of uh, weeks, we've been doing some round tables, just to, where we get each writer to answer some questions, and uh, the readers seem to like it. It's it's just good to get some different stuff in. It 
in the off season to kind of get you away from the hot stove or what well, hasn't been a hot stove, not just for the Mets, but just in baseball. It's been pretty quiet as we basically wait on uh, Shohei Otani and uh, Stanton to see what happens with both of those guys. You're not excited about Matt Perk? Come on now. Forget about Otani. You got Matt Perk. <laughs> he, he actually it, he has a very interesting backstory. Um, I mean, he, he was a guy who had an agreement with the Texas Rangers for $6 million out of high school, but it was at the time that the Rangers' budget was being monitored by Major League Baseball, and then they, Major League Baseball didn't feel like that was something in their budget, so they squashed it. So, I mean, you're talking about a $6 million arm out of high school. Granted, he is not the same arm. He's had two um, arm surgeries since then. Um, but, it's, I mean, as minor league deals go, it it is fairly interesting when he struck out uh, – 11 per nine innings last year. I mean, he's he's an interesting guy. He'll be one to watch in uh, um, spring training, the type of cheap lefty that you might uh, see for a couple innings this year in the big leagues. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, appreciate the time. Uh, always great catching up with you. I'm sure we'll catch up with you before spring training and be well, and we'll keep checking out Mets Marized Online, Mets Miners, and uh, let's do it again, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Mike. That's... Michael Mayer, check him out, Mets Miners, MetsMarizedOnline.com. Does really, really great work. And look, yeah, GM meetings, we talked about it. Uh, Some things starting to percolate, some maybe uh, ideas of what the Mets are going to do. But really the nuts and bolts of where the roster construction begins is with this Rule 5 draft and with figuring out who they need to protect because you can lose a, a decent player. You, know, you mentioned Matt Bowman, who could be a really decent arm in the Mets bullpen. They could have certainly used him over the last couple of years. And uh, he was actually re- highly regarded before he had a bad year in uh, 2015, and they soured on him. They, they did not protect him, and away you go. So, I mean, this is something that, uh, although it's not going to be talked about on a wide scale, is a really important part of the uh, off-season roster construction. So let's take a quick break. When we return, uh, final thoughts. I want to get into Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran announced his retirement this week, brought back some memories of his time with the Mets, and obviously the debate, is Carlos Beltran a Hall of Famer? And where does he fall with respect to uh, Mets history? So I I think it would be interesting. We talked about Keith Hernandez last week. Uh, This week we're talking about Carlos Beltran uh, right after he announced his retirement, just after he won a World Series ring. The elusive uh, World Series ring, maybe. So, anyway, uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll wrap up right after this. This one with his 12th home run of the year, and the Mets send what was left of a crowd of better than 28,000, and everybody else involved, home very happy. Final thoughts, and that's always a pretty cool Carlos Beltran moment with the 16th inning home run against the Phillies in 2006, and we're going home, and I remember watching that game, and uh, early, when, you know, early season, the Mets had a lot of those type of wins in 2006 that spurred them on uh, to what ultimately Beltran was part of 
which is part of a disappointing Mets team, and they never really shook 2006. The fan love affair ended. That was a love affair between the fans and the team. There was a lot of bitterness about how that ended, and Beltran and Delgado, and there was all the Latino connection that I think sparked some controversy. Um, you know, the fans didn't feel the same way about the team the following year, and the collapse, and then the you know 08 and that hanging over. Then the Mets never were able to recover, and then injuries and Jerry Manuel and uh, bad contracts just just ended things. I think sooner than they should have been, but. From 2005, which was a tough start for Beltron with the collision, because uh, you could throw that in there. But the 2000, if you just take 2006 and 2008, he was an outstanding Met, probably the best player on the team. And even after that, I'll tell you, before I get to the numbers, the, what defines Beltron with the kind of, you know, he was always criticized, not being clutch, not a grinder, soft. Uh, he started out 2006 very slow after a bad 2005 where he had a tough time adjusting to New York. And then he had that gruesome collision with Mike Cameron in San Diego that you know, could have ended his career if, if, if it wasn't, uh, you know, if it wasn't, you know, if he, if he was a little bit more unlucky. Um, really serious stuff, Kaladi. You know, I have basically two center fielders out there with center field mentality going after a ball. What do you think is going to happen? But you know, they, they tried the Mets to do something with a, a, a couple of players to improve their defense, and Cameron was still a decent offensive player. But, you know, he came back, got off to a slow start. I always remember a key point in 2006 was when Julio Franco, after a home run, he didn't want to do the curtain call out of the dugout because the fans wanted it. And he was angry at the fans at how they would treat him. Julio Franco encouraged him to go out and take the curtain call. Don't fight with the fans. Don't get us... Don't put an unnecessary distraction into what has been or will be a good season. And I think that was a huge turning point in 2006 with the Mets. A huge turning point in that season. Um, and, you know, Beltron was their best player. I know he struck out. If you go back and look at that Wainwright at, uh, sequence, you know, he should have jumped on that first pitch. Wainwright in subsequent interviews has talked about how nervous he was in that bottom of the ninth. And... Uh, and how hard it was for him to just, you know, you know, he wanted to get one over. He didn't want to fall behind Beltron. And he got one over. It was basically, here, hit it. You know, hit it wherever you can hit it. And hopefully one of my fielders will find it. And when he took that pitch, it was curveball, curveball. And you guys know, well, the rest is history. Wainwright has one of the best curveballs out there. And, um, you know, good night. Good night on 06. And, and really the Mets, that team never recovered after that, just starting with the Mets, you know, is Beltron a Hall of Famer? Now he's retiring after 20 seasons. I think he's got a great case. Uh, as far as his Mets career, I mean, he's in the top three or four in wins above replacement and OPS. Uh, you know, David Wright is ahead of him, but I think David Wright's career trajectory and what has happened with the injuries has brought him back to the pack. Uh, you know, he's right there with guys like Keith Hernandez. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think, Everybody would agree that probably Daryl Strawberry is the best overall positional player in Mets history, most talent. He had a presence at the plate uh, that nobody, uh, probably Piazza had. Piazza was a catcher, and on the defensive side, he was there. Piazza was more of like the the superstar who had to work hard, who was a grinder like the rest of that those 99-2000 teams. Strawberry was flashy, but he was a star. He was a star where that universe circled around. Beltron was a quieter guy. He was smooth. He was steady. Uh, certainly that, that strike three against the Cardinals uh, played a lot into how the media portrayed him, how the fans felt about him. But, uh, you know, you take Beltron and that signing. 
a signing that was unlikely because the Mets thought they were going to compete against the Yankees. And if if Boris's rumors are correct, you know, he offered him back to the Yankees for significantly less after they had basically agreed to deal with the Mets. The Astros really competed for him because he had a great half a season with the Astros. And, and it was close. And I think Beltran wasn't sold on New York totally. And then he, when he chose the Mets and he talked about the new Mets, he became – uh, you know, the de facto face, even though he really wasn't the leader. But when you look at those Mets teams, you had two young guys in Wright and Reyes who were very good very quickly. You had a, a power bat in Delgado, but Beltron was the best. He had a premium position in center field. He had the best overall combination of offense-defense out of all of them. And without him, the 06 Mets don't do what they do. Uh, they probably aren't in, anywhere near contention in 07 and 08. And, if the, you know, again, that last day of the season – it's a two-run homer off the Marlins, uh, uh, you know, against the Marlins when they lost the last day at Shea. It wasn't his fault the Mets lost that day. He put them ahead in a very tense game that there was a lot of anxiety in the building, and Beltran came out and had a big home run there. And he had a big postseason in 06 before the strikeout, and he never got another chance. But I'll tell you, the one thing that really defines Beltran to me is I was talking to a member of the 2011 Mets in spring training. This is after he had the surgeries on his knees, and everybody thought he was done, including me. He looked gimpy in spring training. Oh, uh, Maybe, you know, Terry Collins was talking about maybe he could play once or twice a week. Maybe three times. He's going to have to take two days off. He's gonna, not going to be able to play day games after a night game. Guess what? He hit the, you know, and this is the last year's contract. Mets aren't going to get anything for him. Mets are rebuilding. They wound up getting Zach Wheeler for him because he was that good in 2011. Uh, guy had, uh, you know, a 300 batting average, an OPS over 900, you know, 22 home runs, uh, you know, an on-base percentage of 385, and the Giants used them for their, their stretch run, gave up their best pitching prospect. And then he goes to St. Louis, gets to World Series with St. Louis, has, three, you know, Two really good years there. And they even had some decent times. Now as he, he was not able to play center field anymore after his Mets days. He was already playing right field by the time they traded him. He wasn't center field anymore because of the knee. Couldn't, couldn't keep up with the demands of the position. Um, you know, he had a pretty decent career with the Yankees, too. I mean, not bad. And then, uh, you know, got traded to Texas, helped them with their stretch run. And then this year was more of a... You know, played every day, but not the same player anymore. Uh, you know, basically a shell of his former self and uh, decided to retire, but more of a veteran leadership influence at 40 years old. But, um, you know, I was told in that spring training in 2011 that Beltran pretty much was done. You know, the, nobody knew how he was going to make it through the season. He looked gimpy, and he basically had the last portion of a career that now, you can argue, is a Hall of Fame career. Uh, he's top 60 in wins above replacement overall. He's top 20 in outfielders. I mean, think about that. In outfielders. Guys, you know, Carlos Beltran is ahead of guys like Manny Ramirez, Tim Raines, Tony Gwynn, Dewey Evans, Duke Snyder, Andre Dawson, Dave Winfield. Um, you know, Dave Winfield. Think about that. No, nobody. I mean, this. he's right there. I mean, here's a guy who has, uh, you know, when you look at the final stats, he's hit, uh, you know, 435 home runs, 312 stolen bases. And that's probably the part of his game that when he came to the Mets, because he started to have knee problems pretty quickly when he was with the Mets. It just got progressively worse. Uh, he probably needed his knee taken care of a lot sooner, but he played through it. He played 151 games in 05, 140 in 06. I remember he had some early season knee issues. He played 161 games in 08. That's probably the wear and tear on those games 
probably uh, exacerbated uh, playing center field, playing a gold glove center field, exacerbated the um, you know the knee that injury that happened in 2009, and and then he you know basically missed the full season, half a year of 09, uh, half a year of 10, pretty much missed the full season in his you know late prime of his career that would have helped him, maybe may have even gotten him to 500 home runs, who knows. But, uh, you know, he hits 500 home runs. I don't think anybody's going to argue about Carlos Beltran being a Hall of Famer. So, uh, to me, he is. I think he's a much more important Met than fans give him credit for. I think the narrative of him being unclutch is unfounded. It's based on one at-bat against a tough pitcher in a situation in a game that, uh, you know, they got beat. They got beat. It happens. Cardinals played better. Mets got beat. Willie Randolph didn't manage a great series either. And game two is when they got beat. So that's my thoughts on Carlos Beltran. You know, we had Keith Hernandez last week, uh, and now Carlos Beltran this week. And, uh, you know, some interesting stuff anyway. Hey, we're out of time. I want to thank Michael Mayer for joining me today. You can check him out on MetsMars Online and MetsMiners.net. Of course, I want to thank all you guys for tuning in. You can check me out at Mike Silva Media. You can check out the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hey, guys, happy Thanksgiving. We'll see what the week brings. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to do a podcast next week, holiday weekend, but stay tuned. We'll see what the news brings, and uh, enjoy your holiday. Talk to everyone soon. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.